Welcome to Hub City Vineyard. To get connected or to give online, you can go to connect.hcv.church or give.hcv.church. If at any time during this message you feel called to make a change in your life, text Change Me to 97000. Thank you and enjoy the message. Hey, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? I just walked out of here and realized that I wore blue and I'm supposed to be wearing red because it's February. So please forgive me for that. If you're joining us from home, thank you for welcoming us into your space. One additional announcement that I did make on Friday night at our Freedom Night. For those of you who came, we had an awesome encounter worshiping God and letting go of the struggles that God has highlighted in our life. And at that night, I I spoke about what our end of the year Christmas offering is going to be. So many of you know that last year we raised $56,000 and gave it away to Bloodwater Mission who will make a difference in Africa by building wells to provide clean drinking water to families and communities in those areas. The cool thing about that, I just found out, I got an email back from Bloodwater this week. Jess and I have been invited to go to Kenya in May, which we will be going to. But while on that trip, after speaking with Bloodwater Mission, they actually have wells being built in Kenya that we are going to get to see and take pictures of to send back to all of you uh, just to highlight what your money, what our Christmas gift did this past year. So I'm super excited about that, and I know it's going to make a difference. Now this year, fast forward to Christmas, we've been praying, we've been asking God, you know, what do we focus on, what we can, can we give away uh, money to to make a difference? This year it's going to go to freedom, okay? We are going to give our Christmas gift to different organizations that are focusing on ending human trafficking, Okay, so uh, we're going to partner with A21 around the world. A21 builds houses, recovery houses for victims that are saved and, and set free from human trafficking where they can live and recover. And we're also going to partner with some local agencies that are making a difference locally in the state of Maryland to end human trafficking in the state. Yes, it does happen here. And we now have a team that is raising awareness We are going to do a walk for freedom. Actually, it could be a walk run. We don't know yet. We're working on that as far as the details in October. But we want to, as a community of faith, be a part of ending human trafficking in 2024. So our Christmas gift this year in December is going to go to that effort. Is that okay with everyone? All right, cool. Just wanted to make sure. Just wanted to make sure. So it is the month of love, of course, and we're kicking off a new series called Love Letters. Does anybody want to guess what this series could be about? There you go. Yeah, it's not very hard to figure out. We're going to focus on God's love the entire month. Now, the cool thing about love letters, listen to this, the longest and probably simplest love letter ever written was from a Parisian painter named Marcel de Leclerc in 1875. It was addressed to Magdalene de Villalore, the letter contained one phrase, Je vous ami, I love you, 1,875,000 times. Now the lover didn't write the letter himself, but hired a scribe 
He could have just said, right, I love you 1,875,000 times. However, he actually dictated the letter word for word. Each time he would say the phrase, he would ask the scribe to repeat it back before writing it down. By the time the letter was finished, I love you was spoken and written 5,625,000 times. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of expression of love. Husbands, get busy, okay? We got a lot of work to do. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever laid in bed at night and you just kind of had one of those feelings, you couldn't go to sleep, you're staring at the ceiling, and you just feel unloved and alone? I mean, you could be married, your spouse could be laying beside you, but you just have this sense within you that you wish you had someone to hold you and tell you that they loved you. See, the love we experience here on earth will never compare to God's love for us. Our hearts have been made to cry out for a love that can only come from the Creator. A man or a woman may, may seem like that's the best fix, but only God's love is lasting solution. This truth is actually written throughout the Bible. Did you actually know that the Bible is God's love letter to us? That, that throughout the scriptures, I know there's some weird parts in the Old Testament, but ultimately it's the unending story of God's pursuit of his creation. In Isaiah 43, this is a great example of a love letter from God. One way to study the Bible is to read it and then to write it down in your own words. This actually helps you to better understand it as you read it. So, so I want to challenge you this week. Read Isaiah 43 as if God was writing a letter to you. Then after reading it, write it down in your own words. I did it this week. Here is my love letter from God that I wrote down in my own words. Chris, I created you. I formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. The waters won't overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you won't be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. I am the Lord your God, your Savior, the Holy One. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. I created you for my glory. I formed you and made you. See, friends, God loves us, and he has written us love letters. And for the entire month of February, we're going to be discussing the letter that John wrote to us in the book of 1 John. John the Apostle, one of Jesus' disciples, spent three years with Jesus. He wrote the Gospel of John, of course, an account of Jesus' life. Then he became a pastor in Ephesus. He wrote this letter, as long, along with the second and third letter, to the churches around Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, near the end of his life. Now, in these letters, you will discover that he is expressing his heart as a pastor for these churches. And it is my prayer that as we go through this book this month, that you encounter two truths that I believe will radically change your life. And the first is that you have eternal life. See, one of the main purposes of the book of 1 John, interestingly enough, is that you can find it at the end of the Gospel of John. So when you look at John's Gospel, at the very end, John says this in John chapter 20. 
The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by power of his name. See, that is the theme for John. And in here, in John's first letter, he uses phrases like eternal life over and over again. In fact, 10 different times, an average of twice in each chapter. To go along with that, he also uses words knowing and perceiving another 50 times. So John wanted the men and women in the churches around him that he was pastoring, that they had eternal life. And friends, I want you to know that as well. And it's so important because so many people can be easily deceived about eternal life. And that's why John is writing this letter. Some of the people in his churches were, were deceived. They, they were saying, oh, well, I'm a Christian and, and I believe in God, but it wasn't coming out in their life. They were simply speaking the words to associate with the churches, but they weren't experiencing the change that God desires. There was no evidence of change. And even today, that deception continues in the American church. I mean, there's all kinds of people who think they're Christians, but, but they're not because they simply check a box in a census, right? Or, or they put in their profile page, I'm a Christian, or they grew up in a Christian home. Friends, that does not make you a follower of Jesus. That makes you an associate of him. So my first prayer is that as we go through this book this month, is that you understand the meaning of eternal life. My second prayer, and, and just as important, is that you would experience God's everlasting love. So it's eternal life to know that you are living in it. And not only that, but the word love is used 50 times in just 100 or so verses. That means on average, almost every other verse in 1 John talks about love. Now, now when we say God loves you, right, that's a very common phrase that you hear in the church. In, in fact, it's constantly being used, but what does it really mean? Not just to hear it or know it in your head, but to experience it in your heart. There's a big difference. There's a big difference between knowing and experiencing. For example, think about someone you enjoy and want to spend time with. You know, if I was to think about people I love to spend time with, it's my family. I love spending time with Jess and the kids. I'm so looking forward to the family times and vacations that we spend at the beach every summer during the year. I mean, that time together, those memories that we create, they last a lifetime. I mean, every time my memories pop up on my phone and it starts scrolling beach pictures, I find myself crying tears of joy. Why? Because I love to spend time with them. And it's not just vacation. Many of you know that spring's right around the corner because, like, I didn't a groundhog not see a shadow or something. And we all believe in that, right? We all believe in the groundhog. Right? Don't you love the groundhog? Yeah. You know, for me, it's not about the groundhog. It's Bill Murray, right? I mean, and some of you are so young, you're like, who's Bill Murray? And what's it have to do with the groundhog? Well, you're just too young. 
Go watch some movie called Groundhog Day and you understand it. But see, spring's coming, and many of you know that I spend a lot of my spring coaching my kids. You know, I, I love being a part of their lives and coaching their sports. I'll be coaching Lillian softball very soon. Phoenix, our four-year-old Phoenix starts T-ball. Give me a high five for all those T-ball coaches. We're looking forward to wiping snot and teaching them to hit a ball. You know, it's all kinds of fun. And then, of course, I'll be spending time with Nolan as we work on his baseball. And, and the reality is, I do those things, not so much that I want to coach. I do them because I love spending time with my family, right? And, and that's what it's all about when it comes to a relationship with God. God desires that we enjoy our relationship with him, that we enjoy spending time with him. Don't allow your relationship with Jesus to become a mere religious exercise, Because I tell you what, if it becomes a duty or it just comes monotonous motion, there's not going to be any love. And more importantly, there's not going to be any joy. And no one outside of these walls is going to see God living inside of you. And friends, there's far too many Jesus followers that aren't experiencing that enjoyment today. And, and, And it's my prayer that as we go through this book and we understand God's eternal eternal and everlasting love as we understand his eternal life that we'll spend with him for eternity that our whole outlook on life will change and all of that leads us to our first thought this morning it's not just about spending eternal life with God see Jesus is eternal life and and this is key if you want to know that you have eternal life you have to know Jesus. You know, I had to do a celebration of life yesterday for a young lady that passed way too soon. You know, and as I was meeting with the family, they looked at me and, and we were just sharing memories and we were talking about our life. And, and, and the mom looked at me and said, you know, the one thing that I do know is that she loved God and that she is now with him in eternity. You know, and it's that type of confidence that John wants us all to have. And that's the type of confidence that John desires for us to experience. This is what he writes at the end of the letter in 1 John chapter 5. I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. You know, as their pastor... John wanted his people to know and experience that eternal life. And that eternal life is experienced through what? It's experienced through Jesus. And he opens the letter this way in 1 John 1, 1 through 2. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. John is communicating to the church, friends. John spent time with Jesus. He saw him. He walked with him. He touched him. He listened to him. And through those experiences, he understood eternal life. And then John continues. This one, notice he doesn't even mention his name. It's just like he's pointing us to the one. This one who his life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. 
And that's the point of these verses. Follow this. The concept of eternal life cannot be separated from the person of Jesus. Jesus is eternal life. Right? Without Jesus, we don't have eternal life. And this is exactly what the Gospel of John teaches us about Jesus. So if you go back to John's Gospel, right, you go back and you read through it, notice what he says about Jesus. John 1, 4 through 5. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Then in John 14, he writes this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in John 17, 3, we read, This is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. See, this is eternal life, that you may know God and that you may know Jesus. And when we know Jesus, that's when we know we have eternal life. Now, listen, that's a bold claim to say to 7 billion plus people that are living in this world. And and countless more throughout the history before now that Jesus is the only hope for anyone and everyone to have eternal life. I mean, how is that possible? I mean, think about it. In a world of religions and ideas and thoughts, Jesus says, I'm the only way to eternal life. And John tells us this is true because Jesus is the revelation of God. And that's the language in 1 John 1, 2. The one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. It was revealed by God, the author of all life from the very beginning. Notice how it echoes Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. So in the beginning, there was God. Jesus is the revelation of God who was in the beginning. And the Bible is saying, see who Jesus is. He is the one who was with God, the Father, from the very beginning before anything else ever was. And this is important because there were people during this time that assumed that they were Jesus followers, but they denied that Jesus was God. So they said they were Christians or Jesus followers, but they were denying, no, Jesus isn't God. And John is warning the church, that's false teaching. Don't believe that. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is God in human flesh. See who Jesus is, what he's done. He's come to us. And that's the point here in 1 John. God has come to us. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him with our own hands. And and this is the reality of the Bible. So, So if you've ever wanted, if you've ever wondered, what does God look like? If God could visit me, if God could sit beside me, you know who he is. His name is Jesus. He walked this earth with us and for us. And it changes everything. Because the implications of that truth have ramifications for all of us in this room, all of us watching online, and not just for our life now, but our life forever. Right? It's it's not just about being in general our life, but for every single detail of our life. Right from, from our relationships, to our jobs, to our families, to our income. Jesus 
should be involved in every single detail. And that's important because many people just view Jesus as, oh, he's just a good religious, religious teacher. He had good teachings. We, we should model ourselves after his teachings, who did good things. But they're not willing to follow him as God. Because if, if you're not willing to follow him as God, that means you're not willing to allow him to be Lord over your life, to direct and guide your life. And, there, and, and it's just my fear that there's so many people in the church who live that way. They're content to show up to church, give Jesus a high five at the door, throw your hands up in a little worship, but then Monday through Saturday, just go and do whatever you want. And that's not Jesus. I mean, Jesus wants it all. He doesn't want to be kept at an arm's length. He wants to be Lord over your universe. And let's be honest. We believe we're the center of the universe. I mean, think about where your thoughts go the first thing you do when you wake up. It's all about us. See, eternal life hinges on us humbling ourselves and acknowledging who Jesus is. Jesus is eternal life. Not part of your life. Not just on Sundays, right? Maybe on Wednesday when you show up to men's group. No. Your entire life. That's the first truth which leads us to our next thought. Jesus offers everlasting love. So Jesus is eternal life. Jesus offers everlasting love. 1 John 4, 8. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. See, here's the, here's the crazy thing. Many of us know that statement. Oh, yeah, God is love, Chris. We've been created to enjoy God's love, not just to know those three words, right? We, we, we haven't been created to say, oh, yeah, God is love. No, we've been created to enjoy it, to experience it, to be with God. Notice 1 John 1, 3 through 4. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may be fully share in our joy. Now notice, I mentioned that the word love is all over 1 John, but you'll notice... It's not found anywhere in the verses I just read. In fact, it's nowhere written in chapter one. You don't see love mentioned at all. But that doesn't mean the love of God is not there. It's all over what we just read. Think about it. How do you know someone loves you? How do you know it? They show it, right? It comes out in their actions. They reveal it. They make known their love for you by their actions. I mean, someone might frequently say to you that they love you, but if they're not living it out, do you believe it? Of course not. You need to see it because actions speak louder than words. So in this sense, in order for love to be love, it must be made known. What is John saying? He's saying, well, I've seen it. I've heard it. I've touched it. I've experienced it. This is love. And that word fellowship is repeated four times in chapter one, twice in what we just read, and then once in verse six and once in verse seven. Fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, and it means a close, intimate bond. In fact, it's used to describe a marriage relationship. So John just said, we have a bond, an intimate relationship with the Father and His Son, Jesus. And, and he's pointing us to the reality that it's that closeness that he desires for us. That's love. 
But, but so many people, this is where the struggles come in. They begin to question it because they think, well, wait, 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 wait. But Chris, I sin. I make mistakes. I make bad choices. And I get that. Each one of us in this room have. We all deserve separation from God. We deserve judgment. We warrant it, in fact, because God is love. But the beauty of this passage is that God has not left us alone. He has not separated himself from us. He's made a way for us to reconnect. We reconnect through what? Jesus. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. All the way to the point of this. Think about this. We crucified him. That's how we touched him. As rebellious sinners against God, God took on flesh and he was nailed to the cross in the most cruel form of death that we could ever conceive or even imagine. Yet Jesus endured that cross. Do you know why? Because he loves us. Because he desires to be with us. 1 John 3.16 says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. See, Jesus willingly and lovingly died for sin. He didn't commit. He endured the judgment of sin, death, that we deserve, but he did it so that we could turn from our sin and believe and put our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He made a way for intimacy, just like a marriage relationship, because that's what God desires for his creation. And this is so important to understand because it leads us to our next thought. Look, God is holy. And like Chris, you used that same statement last week. I sure did, and it's important because we read in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Now in the previous verse, John wrote that you may fully share our joy. So here's the message that is intended to bring joy. God is light. Okay, joy in our lives starts with a proper understanding of and focus on God. A God-centered approach to everything. A kingdom-minded focus. And that's very different from the way we normally think. We think joy starts with what? Focusing on ourselves. What we think we need, what we think we want, what we gotta have. That's where we always go first, looking for joy accordingly. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says joy starts with seeing God as light. So, so what does that mean, and why does that bring joy? For God to be light means he's the source of all goodness. That's what it means. And that's why we use the term holy, set apart, right? God is the source of goodness. For God to be light is a picture of pure life that is found in him. Now, remember, back at the beginning of the Bible, where did life begin? Genesis 1, 3 through 4. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. Life began with what? Light. And it's no coincidence then that John writes in his gospel account of Jesus's life, he opens up by saying that Jesus, in fact, was the light of life for all men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't 
overcome it. So in announcing the coming of Jesus, John is saying, light has come. Light is walking on this earth. So for God to be light means he is the source of abundant life. And God is the source of goodness. Why? Because he's perfect. He's holy. Now to contrast that statement for you and I, there isn't a day that goes by that we don't mess something up. True or false? Well, I didn't hear too many truths. There's not a day that goes by that we don't mess something up. True or false? Thank you. All right. I just want to acknowledge that there's not too many Jesuses walking in this room. I mean, for simply saying something to our spouse that was hurtful. Have you ever said something and you literally see it leaving your mouth and you're like grabbing it in slow motion like, no, too late. You've done that before. Yeah. I mean, some of you got angry over a driver that was going too slow on the way to church this morning. Right? I mean, yesterday, let's be honest, many of you were gossiping with a friend. Oh, I was speaking truth, Chris. No, you weren't. <laughs> isn't, that a, isn't, that a great, isn't that a great Christian excuse? Oh, it was truth. Sure it was. Yeah. It's so funny. I've, I've so gravitated away from social media because when I'm on it, I just judge. God, forgive me. I, and, and, if, and if you're doing it, just get off of it, right? And here's the reality what I'm trying to say. We're not perfect. And that's what's different about God. God never has to worry about messing things up. He can't mess up. It's not in his character. He is perfectly good. And good is the, is the key in that description because light is contrasted with darkness all over the Bible to depict what? Good and evil. So when John says there's no darkness in God, he's saying there's no evil in God. Everything in God is good. But the bad news is that while God is good and holy, we mess up. We make mistakes. We sin. And nine times between 1 John 1, 6 and 1 John 2, 2, John mentions sin. And that's more than once in each verse. And that's in addition to talking about darkness, unrighteousness, deception, and lies. So our sinfulness is all over the opening of this passage. And the problem, it's not just that we sin every once in a while. The problem is we were born into it. So, so we have a natural bent, if you will, to lean towards Sin. First John 1, 6, 8, and 10. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. You see that bent? We all have that lean towards sin, and all of us do, including me. And what does that mean? That just means we have a bent or a lean toward disobeying God. Because if you go back to the beginning, right, what did we want? We wanted control. We wanted to be in control of our world. And if you want a definition of sin, John writes this in 1 John 3, 4. 
Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. So in other words, what that means, let me put it in understandable terms. Whenever we think, desire, or act in a way the Bible tells us not to think, desire, or act, it is Let's try again. When we fail to think, desire, or act in a way that the Bible says we should think, desire, or act, then we... It's much better. So, So now many of us can realize that... Okay, Chris, I get your point. Yes, I sin. I sin. But here... Now listen... I want to blow your mind here a second. I wonder, how often do we actually stop and feel the weight of that reality? See, I'm guessing that for many of us, we've never actually stopped and felt the weight of that reality. And and this is where I want you to see in this passage how bad this news is, and particularly in light of the good news that God is holy. You put those two pieces of news together, and there's a massive problem. And and the problem is not just for us. The problem is also for God. God is holy, perfect, faithful, just, without sin. Right? We are the opposite. We tend to lean towards sin, toward darkness. Now listen, we're about to dive into into the theological deep end here. Okay? Everyone take a deep breath. We read. Everyone stand up real quick. Stand up. Stand up. Sit back down. There you go. Okay. There you go. Okay. I, it's, now listen, it's important. You guys laugh. I did that for a reason because you were losing focus. You're like, oh, theological deep end. I'm checking out. I don't need that. I'm not going to understand it. It's going to go right over my head. Okay. So, we got, so let's do it. You ready? Here we go. So God is holy. He's perfect. He's faithful and just. We're the opposite. As a result, we deserve his judgment. So, so for us, to sin means we've turned from the light to the darkness. We've turned from good to evil. And as a result, you and I deserve the judgment due sin, which is eternal separation. And, and suddenly we have this tension that is at the center of the core of the Bible. How can a holy God show his love to sinners when they are rightly due his judgment. And see, that's the most important question in the Bible. How, how can a God be true, just, kind, and loving when in reality, we don't deserve it? And we gotta really feel that. Because for many people, they don't think it's a problem at all. There's not too many people in the United States of America losing sleep every night, tonight, because God is kind to sinners. Like, they're not worried about it. In fact, if we're we're honest, it's just the opposite. Humanity actually points its finger at God and says, how can you send someone to hell? I thought you were a loving God. How does a loving God do bad to other people? How can a loving God, have you heard that before? We all hear it. How does a loving God do this? How does a loving God do that? How could a loving God send someone to hell? Who are you, God, to judge someone? 
Hey, God, how can you tell me what's the difference between right and wrong? Mm. That's what we think. We're human- that's what humanity thinks. But the question of the Bible is the exact opposite. See, it's completely right. The question of the Bible is, God, how can you be just and still let sinners experience eternal life? It's the exact opposite. And if we look at it, let's step back. One is very man-centered perspective. Us. How can you do this, God? The other is a what? God-centered perspective. Kingdom mindset. And the good news is that God is holy. The bad news is that we sin. And all that leads to the best news ever, which is our final thought. Jesus died for God. 1 John 1, 7. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with each other in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. Now, some of you, I'd say 75% of you are sitting there thinking, Chris, did you just misspeak? Did you just say Jesus died for God? Wait, uh, I thought he died for us. That's the best news, that Jesus died for us. Remember, what are we trying to shift? Perspective. We're trying to shift perspective from us-centered to God-centered. Kingdom mindset. And the kingdom mindset... That perspective says, no, Jesus died for God first. Think about it. Think about God. Okay? And you see it in 1 John. Don't get me wrong. Jesus did die for us. But but here's the reality. Many followers of Jesus have never realized that his death just wasn't for us. His death was ultimately for God first. We're, we're, we're not the center of the universe. Who is? God. God is the center of the universe. Everything revolves around him. That's why 1 John is teaching us God is light. That's where it all starts. In him there's no what? Darkness. Then in the verse, we read that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. How is that possible? How can Jesus' blood cleanse guilty, mistake-ridden Sinners from their sin. Well, notice, he himself, 1 John 2, 2, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of all, the whole world. Now we're going to learn a new word from the English Standard Version. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's a great word. The only time you're going to hear this word is in the Bible. Okay, that's it. Propitiation. Everyone say that. All right, say it again and don't spit on your neighbor's head. Because there's a bent to sin. Propitiation. But many of us don't even know what it means. Right? We don't even know what propitiation means. Propitiation is a word that simply refers to a sacrifice that settles judgment or satisfies wrath. Throughout the Old Testament... The Israelites, when they sinned, what did they have to do? They had to sacrifice an animal. Many of you learned a few weeks ago that Chris didn't want to be a pastor back then. 
because I can't even shoot an animal, much less cut its head off. Okay, I couldn't imagine doing that. But worse yet, I couldn't imagine looking at your boils. Okay? So that sacrifice was a propitiation. It was a symbol for the penalty of sin. And as a result, God forgave the people. But in the New Testament, the whole point is that those Old Testament sacrifices, it's not enough. None of those sacrifices could pay the full price of people's sin against God. So the question remained, how can a holy God show his love to guilty sinners? He solved the problem by sending his son Jesus, who never sins, never broke God's law, but kept God's law perfectly. He he didn't deserve the penalty due sin. And that made him, think about it, God in flesh. He was qualified to pay the divine penalty due sinners. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And he did it, not for us, but for the glory of God. And how do I know that? Well, let's look at his prayer. John 12. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Notice, Father, bring glory to your name. See, the glory, the goodness, the light of God drove Jesus to the what? To the cross. And Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shed in his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Again, English Standard Version, not King James. English Standard Version whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See, Jesus died to show that indeed God was holy. He's perfect, he's righteous, he's good, and he's loving. The one crowning moment in all of human history is that Jesus died to satisfy the judgment of God on all of us. Because he passionately loves us. And he wanted to be reconnected to us. Chinese church, church leader, Watchman Nee, puts it this way. If I would appreciate the blood of Christ, I must accept God's evaluation of it. For the blood is not for me, but for God. I mean, Jesus died for the glory of God in all of his holiness and justice and love. And that's key. We've got to realize we need to turn the tables and have a what? Kingdom-minded focus of what the cross is. A God-centered view. The cross is first and foremost about God. It's not about us. It's a declaration to the world that God is holy and that his love is holy and his judgment is real. The cross is intended us to think more highly of God. You look at the cross and you see God is holy. Is that your view? Because Jesus died for God. And that's the point here. It changes everything about our view of the gospel. God has made a way for you to be forgiven of all your sin. In his great love, he sent his son to be poured out so that that judgment that we deserve instead went on Jesus. And that's John's 
challenge to his church, which leads to our action steps. Church, you're called to walk in the light. And what does that mean? When we, when we walk in the light, what is God? God is light. Thank you. Remember, we learned, just learned that. So, so that's why John's challenge is we've got to walk in the light because we want to walk in all of God's goodness. We want to walk in all that God has for us, his abundance, to therefore live the good life. But here's the problem. What's the world tell us is the good life? A bigger house. A large car payment. Have you, ever, have you watched those new commercials? Listen, have you watched those new commercials of the new cruise ship? I mean, that thing looks amazing. I mean, there's like water slides. There's snowboarding. I mean, it's like you can bungee, jord off, bungee jump off the side. I'm just like, that looks amazing. I want to go on that ship. But then you would get around all the people, and they would drive you absolutely bonkers, and you would want to jump off the side of it to get away from everyone. What is it? It's a lie. It's not the good life. The good life is fellowship with God. That's it. That's it. The good life is having a passionate relationship with Jesus because everything else is going to leave you empty. So five simple steps. I'm going to get through these quick. I know I'm running a little long. I'm sorry. We went deep theological talk today. But I know you all learned something and you're going to leave here forever changed. Amen? And the first is this. You got to examine. First John 1, 9 through 10, but if we confess our sins, everyone say sins. Yes. Say it again. Sin. Thank you. Notice it says Sins, here in First John. Sins speaks to specific sins, not general sin. And so many people in their relationship with Jesus, they want to say, God, forgive me of my sin. And they don't want to get specific. They don't want to get to the cusp of what is going on in their heart. And it's not just about saying, God, forgive me my sin. It's not a one-time thing that we do at the beginning of our relationship with God. Yes, that's important, but remember, God is light. And part of the purpose of light is to expose what? Darkness. Now, I know none of you have darkness. But he wants to expose it in our heart. Not all of it. Just a little bit. Because the closer we get to the light, the more clearly we will see the areas of our lives that aren't lining up. Right? I, in the past, when we've gone to the beach, I was talking about the beach. I love the beach. We've gone out on the beach before at night. I'm sure many of you have done this. You take a flashlight, right? And you turn the flashlight on, and suddenly you look down, and there's crabs everywhere, right? I think, that, I think in the first service, they called them ghost crabs. You know what I'm talking about? Everyone just nod a little bit. Play, play with me. All right, you know what they are. So you got that light out, and you shine it, and when, you, and when the light hits the crab, what do they do? They run. They run into their holes. Now, my kids, they want to run and dig into the holes. I'm like, no, because to me, it seems like they might get pinched, but accordingly, they don't pinch. I don't know if they do or not, but I still don't want them to because that might be painful. I'm on a tangent. I'm sorry. So <laughs> the point is, when the light shines on the crabs, they run because light exposes the darkness. Oh, sorry. So the same goes for us. And my challenge to you is when God exposes light into our darkness don't run and scurry or hide go to him 
and confess, which is our next step. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And I love that image of God cleansing us. How many of you are here when I, when I climbed out of the um, baptismal and, and spoke with, to you soaking wet? Were some of you here for that? Some of you aren't raising your hands and nodding and so you're lying to me. <laughs> I forgive you though. The point is, I was standing up here soaking wet, dripping. It was probably the stupidest thing I ever did because I had to stop chattering my teeth because I was so freezing cold to share with you an example. But I believe it was a good example. But the point is, that's the image I want you to see of God cleansing us. See, when he exposes us, and then we go to him and say, God, forgive me for that sin specifically, what does he do? He cleanses us. He cleanses us. Think about it. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Father, forgive us our sins. He didn't say, Father, forgive us our sin. It's plural. And it's necessary to have an ongoing relationship with God that we, what? Confess. And for those of you that think that God's going to get mad at you and he's going to be upset with you and and, and he's going to, listen, listen, I have a lot of children I happen to have one that's four years old right now, and he doesn't listen. Out of all of our children, he is the most disobedient child. And he doesn't listen. And it makes me upset and frustrated. Sometimes I get angry. Sometimes. But the point is, okay, though he is disobedient, do I love him any less? Of course not love him any less. I love him more. Now, do I want him to listen? Of course I do. So here's my point. Stop being so foolish to think that you can go and hide in the sand all your sin. God already knows it. Don't be like a little crab that scurries to its hole because you're in your hole and you can't move anywhere and your sand falling in your face and you're miserable. But God says, I see it anyway. I know what's going on in your heart. I know what's going on in your mind. I know how you're living. Confess. I still love you, but get right with me, which leads us to our next step, receive. So you got to remember, examine, confess, receive. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Listen to that. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is true. Friends, we receive grace. We receive grace happily, in fact. And that's the beauty of these verses. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. God's not angry with you. He's not angry with you. He wants you to come and be close to him and be passionate in love with him. But it only happens when we have our heart right. So you receive the grace. And unfortunately, the Bible calls Satan the what? The accuser. And when we sin, the, the, the enemy, you're not worthy. You can't go to God. You can't seek forgiveness. But listen, in those verses, picture a courtroom, right? The, the judge is standing or sitting behind the desk, and the enemy is accusing you. You can't get forgiveness. You'll never be free. And Jesus stands up and says, he's forgiven. She's forgiven. That makes a difference. That's why we receive God's grace 
happily. Our fourth step, we need to obey. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. We confess sin, we receive grace, and then we want to obey. We want to walk in the light. We want to humbly obey him. Are we ever going to be perfect? No. But John clearly is allowing for sin in the picture here. And here's the reality of what John wants us to see. John wants us to realize we're never going to be perfect. It's not about holy perfection. It's about holy direction. That as long as your direction is going towards Jesus, then that's the direction you want to be going in. But if you're standing still, you're going nowhere. And your relationship with God is going to stall out. You're going to be boring. It's going to become religious. And then you're going to disappear. And God says, focus on the direction. Focus on where you're going. I mean, here's the, here's the reality. I shared this at our celebration of life yesterday. There, there's going to be a time coming where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things is what? Passed away. And that's going to be a beautiful time that we all want to be in as we spend eternity with our creator. But here's the reality. Until that time comes, we need to be moving in the direction toward Jesus. And as we're looking and moving towards Jesus, then suddenly he's going to give us the opportunity, number five, to share. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And notice, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of what? The whole world. And here's, the, here's what I want to tell you. When you have the opportunity to share about Jesus' eternal life, his forgiveness, his grace, when you're pointing people to what Jesus did on the cross and you see someone come into a relationship with him, you'll never be the same. There'll be an exceedingly abundant joy that wells up within you that says, yes, I want to do it again. And that's what John wants for his church. John desires that his church shares about this grace, this forgiveness, this joy, and this abundance so that we're constantly just giving it away, heaping it on people's heads, right? Pulling them out of the sand, pulling them out of the trenches, allowing them to see God's abundance in their own lives. And I want to challenge you. Don't allow the fear of man to keep you down. And that's the only thing that keeps us down from sharing the goodness that God has done for us with others. So we're going to share in communion to close. Don't stand up. It's easier to give it out. If you didn't get a communion element, put your hand up so we can give them to you. Look around. If the people's hand's up, you can see who was late. <laughs> but don't judge them. If you, if you need gluten-free, you can be a holy roller. Ah, there we go. There's always one in the crowd. Let's see if she can keep them up, though. Frank, need one up here in the front? Got it. All right, so while they're going around, I just want to encourage everyone. You know, as we take communion together, the bread the, is simply a reminder of Jesus' broken body on the cross. Jesus died for who first? Uh, Jesus died for who first? Okay, thank you. All right, just checking. Just a quick quiz. 
is. Jesus' broken body. The juice simply is a reminder of Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. So it's everybody, everybody good? All right, let's stand. All right, before we, now listen, before we take and share a communion, I'm going to pray a simple prayer because some of you may need to get right with God. I don't want you sharing in communion without being right with God. So we're going to pray a simple prayer. For those of you that are in a relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you, if God put a flashlight on your heart, ask for forgiveness for whatever he highlighted before we take communion. That's the point in taking communion so that we can what? Get right. So let's pray. Jesus, I'm broken. I'm full of doubt, shame, regret, sin. I believe you're God's son. I believe you died for me. Oh, God, set me free. Make me new. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he drank it. He said, this is the blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it often and do it in remembrance of me. Yes, God. All right, now before we go, hold on. I got to do one more thing. God, God highlighted something for me to do before we leave. It's going to be a little weird. We did it first service, though. I know you guys are better. You're more awake. You're stronger. Okay, so we can do it. I want us all to join hands. Everybody, even crossroads. I want a community of faith with linked hands. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Yes. Oh, this is beautiful. There you go. All right. All right, Johnny, pinky me. You go that way. There you go. Now, now listen, I'm going I'm to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I'm going to ask God to reveal someone in your sphere of influence that you're called to share this good news with. And now I'm going to pray for all of us that we have the faith to step out and share it this week. And that even includes praying for the sick. That even includes praying for someone's marriage to be restored. I mean, whatever comes across your path, you're going to step out and do it. So Holy Spirit, come, God. Reveal to us that person, those people in our sphere of influence, God, that just need your grace, love, and forgiveness. And I pray for this community of faith, God, that they would boldly step out in faith and see your kingdom come and your will be done. Signs, wonders, miracles, more importantly, new life in Jesus. Use us, God. Help us be the church. In Jesus.